got to control yourself, man. So, okay. I'm grateful that those words ring true uh, to all of us uh, who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, there is a hope, right? There is a hope. And uh, that's also fitting, and I've chosen that hymn because of our topic tonight, uh, which is in Romans chapter 1. So if you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, we are returning to these opening verses of this first great section of the book of Romans, that is verses uh, 18 of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, where the Apostle Paul is seeking to establish man's guilt before God. You will remember that it comes at the very beginning of his argument, and so it is a general statement about all of mankind. Uh, He will go on uh, individually to deal with Gentiles and Jews separately. In fact, this section really is focused on the Gentiles, but these opening verses are really about all of mankind being guilty before God. Uh, But again, he'll go on as he looks at Jew and Gentile separately. The Gentiles are guilty because... They have rejected God. The Jews are guilty uh, because they have rejected not only God, but all that God had given to them and revealed to them under the old covenant. Paul is dealing, you'll remember, with two revelations in chapter 1, verse 17 and chapter 1, verse 18. We noted those, uh, the revelation of the good news of the gospel revealed now in the person of Jesus Christ that God is revealing a righteousness to mankind, something alien to him, outside of man, for it cannot come from him because of his sin, that God has provided, of course, in Christ. This righteousness, Paul says in those theme verses, is received by faith alone. This is probably, as some argue, and there is debate, but it is probably true that these are the theme verses of the whole of the book of Romans. In that gospel, that righteousness is being revealed. But Paul also notes in verse 18 that there's something else being revealed. Instead of moving further into an understanding of that righteousness, he turns his attention to the wrath of God, which is also being revealed, according to verse 18, from heaven. That wrath is active, it's personal, and it's passionate. It's really what the word means, wrath that God is revealing from heaven against all ungodliness, which is a failure to worship, to honor God as God, and all unrighteousness, which is a failure to love our neighbor as we ought. In man's righteousness, or unrighteousness, he is suppressing the truth about God, Paul says, a truth that he knows and he sees, denying the things that he sees and knows about God, and failing to honor him as God and give him thanks. This is the woeful condition of fallen humanity. And it is the reason why Paul rejoices and delights in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I want to do this evening is to really focus our attention on what is in the Greek just one word, the word at the end of verse 20, which is without excuse in the English, But it is one word in the Greek. It is a statement of great importance as we seek to understand what Paul is writing about in these verses. And so I want to look at these verses more closely, understand what Paul is teaching by them. And I trust God will bless it to our understanding and to our growth. 
And so once again, let's stand as we read uh, the verses 18 through 23. This is God's word, and then we'll come back to focus on those two verses, or that one verse in the end of verse 20. Beginning in verse 18, this is God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come to this passage, it is of utmost importance that each of us here tonight understands that woeful condition in which man finds himself by nature under your wrath, which is ever being revealed from heaven because of our unrighteousness, our ungodliness. And so, Father, we pray that your blessing would be upon us, that we would have understanding, and that we would rejoice ultimately in what you have shown to us, not only in what you have made, but in what you have done in the person and work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us in and through him, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our purpose this evening is... Again, very straightforward. I usually have three points to the sermons I preach, as does Pastor Fisher most often. But tonight there is only one, and it is this. All of mankind, as Paul writes, is guilty before God and without excuse. Now, without excuse, of course, takes us uh, not to the daily, uh, ever-present wrath of God being revealed from heaven, but to the ultimate day of wrath and of judgment still yet to come. That is a general statement the apostle makes, and it's my hope to show clearly why it is so before making progress into the following verses, which will take us deeper and deeper into man's depravity and God's wrath against him. To do so, I think it is important for us to begin with an important distinction between the ways in which God reveals himself. Some of this will certainly sound familiar to our young uh, folks who are in Pastor Fisher's class studying theology. There are two main types of revelation as the Bible speaks of it, and this is at the heart of what Paul is speaking of in these verses. The first is what is called general revelation. General revelation is referred to as general because it is aimed uh, to a general audience and it contains general content. 
Though general revelation is to all men, God communicates his, or through general revelation, which is to all men, God communicates his existence, his power, and his glory, such that men are left, as Paul writes, without excuse. You see it here, this general revelation, as he talks about his invisible attributes, verse 20, namely his eternal power and divine nature. That phrase divine nature is an expression that refers to God as who he is, as God. And so he's revealing who he is generally, his attributes, his character in the creation that is he has made. It's usually understood that God reveals himself in this way through creation and providence and history. So creation, what God has made, what we see with our eyes. Providence, how he governs all things and orders all things according to his own will. And the course of history itself from the very beginning. As we noted this morning, the creation of Adam and Eve all the way up until now. All of history displays something of the character and nature of God. These are the things which mankind can see and understand, places where God has clearly revealed himself. This means, by, this means by which God reveals himself can also be divided again into two subcategories, and that is mediate and immediate, two different words. I'll explain them in a moment. Immediate general revelation, that revelation which comes through a means or uh, something that God uses to reveal himself. Immediate revelation, general revelation, is that which God directly reveals to mankind and in mankind. When you think of that which is immediate general revelation... You think of a word that we often talk about, right? Media. Media is a great example of something that is used to reveal and to dispense information to us. Think of your TV. Think of your phone. Think of the Internet and the news sources that you check. You can say, for instance, that the Phillies won their game today. I don't know if they did or not. But you can say, I don't even know if they were playing, but you can say that they won their game even though you didn't go to the game. Now, you can do that because information has been given to you through another source, your phone again, media in some way. In the same way, God reveals himself through these means, creation, providence, and history, each one in their turn. That's immediate general revelation. That's the sources or the things that God uses to reveal something of himself. And as we'll see, and I'll say it again, this is what Paul primarily is talking about here. But there's also another kind of immediate general revelation, and that, or general revelation, that's called immediate. What we, you know, immediate, like currently present right there. This immediate general revelation is something that we also see in Romans chapter 1. In in fact, that verse that I just read, uh, the verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. A, A better translation actually, and some versions have this, for what can be known about God is plain in them. 
because God has shown it to them. That's sort of an allusion to something that God later in Romans 1 and in Romans 2 will speak of very specifically, that there is an immediate revelation of himself in a general sense that God has worked in all of mankind by virtue of their being created in his image and likeness. For instance, in Romans 1 at the very end, verse 32 Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That really is referencing something that God does in man by virtue of his being created in the image of God, that God has written something upon their own hearts. Later in chapter 2, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying in those verses is that there is an immediate general revelation, a knowledge of God, that expresses itself in our conscience so that we know the difference between right and wrong. You look at all of history, all of cultures that have ever existed, there is always an understanding at some basic level of the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Every culture develops mores and principles that are to be followed, and all of that is part of God's general immediate revelation, something he works within our hearts by virtue of our being created in his likeness. What Paul is speaking of in these verses is that mediate or by means of creation, providence, and history that God has revealed himself. Mankind suppresses that. But make no mistake about it, he's going to make the argument later that mankind also suppresses that immediate general revelation as well. A knowledge that he has implanted in our hearts that we resist, press down, and deny. Well, that's the first way God reveals himself through general revelation, these two ways under that heading. But there's also special revelation as well. And that is reserved for God's word that is spoken first and then written down. Special revelation is the revelation of God, his purpose, his plan, and especially all things related to his saving of sinners is revealed not in general revelation, either immediate or mediate, but rather in special revelation. You see, general revelation is directed to all men. It is, however, according to our standards, not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. General revelation does not reveal Jesus Christ or his work of redemption for sinners. Thus, there is a need for special revelation the way in which God reveals his plan of salvation. The Belgic Confession, a parallel 
uh, confession to our own states it this way. We know him, that is, we know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, his providence, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to see clearly the invisible things of God, even his everlasting power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20. All which things are sufficient to convince men and to leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word, That is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life to his glory and our salvation. Here's the point. General revelation is that which God is revealing to all mankind every day and always without end. As we see and saw last week in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Paul is talking about that general revelation where his invisible attributes what we can't see are seen through what he has made and created and man Paul says is suppressing that knowledge in unrighteousness and so for Paul he is not ashamed of the special revelation of the gospel revealed in Jesus Christ because it is the remedy for this woeful condition of mankind before him in his sin and in his rebellion. What Paul is only speaking of here in general revelation leaves, he says, man without excuse before the bar of divine justice. It is on the basis of general revelation that man, in suppressing it, is condemned before the judgment throne of God, not on the basis of special revelation. We'll talk about that in a moment. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, in creation, in providence, in history, the sort of familiar breakdown of that general revelation, there is not enough knowledge to save us. You will not find the love of God there. You will not find the grace of God in the stars above, nor the mercy and compassion of God. But you will find his greatness, his glory, his majesty, his might, his dominion, his justice, his righteousness, yes, and his holiness in some measure. This general revelation which God has given and which remains is not enough to save man, but it is enough to render man inexcusable 
for his godlessness and for his sinfulness. It is enough to leave him without excuse. You see, this is man's great problem, according to the Apostle Paul. It is what man in his sin and rebellion does with general revelation. To push it down with great force, the word anticipates. Much like many commentators have noted, a coiled spring that we push down with force. And if we let the force off of it, it springs back up. It's that force required in the heart of man to deny what God has revealed in creation. But this, Paul says, is how man in his sin deals with God and what he has revealed about himself. And Paul says at the end of verse 20 that because of this, they are all without excuse. The word is probably best translated that way, but another way of translating it is without defense. And if you like the courtroom scene, it's appearing before the judgment seat of God, God the judge seated upon his throne, and appearing before him without defense counsel, alone before him. There is no defense, he says, without excuse. I think John Calvin captured it well as he, writing in his Institutes in Book 1, And chapter 5, dealing with the knowledge of God and how it is conspicuous and obvious in creation, which, by the way, is exactly what Paul says here. It is plain to us. It is not hidden from us. We don't need to be an Indiana Jones to find the nature and character of God as he's revealed himself in creation. It is plainly seen by everyone. Calvin writes this, those things which men call fortuitous events are so many proofs of divine providence and more especially of fatherly clemency furnishing ground of joy to the righteous and at the same time stopping the mouths of the ungodly. There's that without excuse. But he writes, as the greater part of mankind enslaved by error, sin, walk blindfolded in this glorious theater. That phrase has been very famous as those who study Calvin, this idea of being blindfolded in the glorious theater of his creation. He exclaims that it is a rare and singular wisdom to meditate carefully on these works of God, which many who seem most sharp-sighted in other respects, behold without profit. It is indeed true that the brightest manifestation of divine glory finds not one genuine spectator among a hundred. Still neither his power nor his wisdom is shrouded in darkness. His power is strikingly displayed when the rage of the wicked, to all appearance irresistible, is crushed in a single moment. Their arrogance subdued, their strongest bulwarks overthrown, their armor dashed to pieces, their strength broken, their schemes defeated without an effort, and audacity which set itself above the heaven 
is precipitated to the lowest steps of the earth. You see, he's looking at history and providence. And he's saying when God overthrows the wicked, that is a display of God's justice, of his righteousness, of his power. And men ignore those things and suppress the truth of that. It's important to note that when Calvin says that men walk around blindfolded in this glorious theater, he's not talking about an ability to see. He's talking about a moral issue that mankind in his sin, that man and woman in their sin, places the blindfold over their own eyes and will not acknowledge God to be God will not worship him as God, honor him according to verse 21, or give him thanks. For God has made plain that which can be clearly perceived. This is what Paul means when he says they are therefore without excuse. We need to understand the condition of natural man in his fallenness, that this is who we were before our conversion, before God showed mercy to us, that we were those who suppressed this truth, would not acknowledge it, were not drawn to the God who made all of these things. But we can take this one step further, and I think this is helpful to do so as we continue to look at this idea of without excuse. R.C. Sproul, when he uh, was alive, said that the single most question that he was asked, the, the single question he was most often asked throughout all the years of his ministry was this question. By what or but what of the innocent savage or the tribesman who lives in the farthest reaches of Australia or other continents and has never heard about Jesus? What will happen to him? Now, if you listen to him talk about this, he's talked about it several times in different talks he gave, but he always starts with an answer which intrigues the, the asker of the question, and he answered it this way to get a reaction. He said, well, nothing happens to him. When he dies, he goes immediately into the presence of Almighty God, and he lives for all eternity in the presence of his glory. Now, most of the people who ask him that question come back to him and challenge him and wonder whether he's lost his mind. Well, of course, it is a trick answer to a question that is complex because the questioner asked what? He asked about an innocent man. And so R.C. Sproul responded appropriately. His answer is correct. If the man is indeed innocent, he will be in heaven If he's innocent, he's holy, and he can dwell in the presence of a holy God. But of course, he goes on to say, man is not innocent. In fact, according to what Paul says here, all of mankind are declared guilty before God. As he explains that to the people who ask them this question, someone will no doubt follow up with another question. What will become then of the one who has never had a chance to hear about Jesus. Special revelation through the gospel has never come to him or to her. To which R.C. Sproul rightly says, 
People will not be judged based on what they do not know, but based upon what they know. And that's his argument, and it comes from Romans chapter 1. Because mankind, all of mankind, know about God. They know about God because of the general immediate revelation that comes through creation, providence, and history. And they know about God, as he will later say, because of the work of God in implanting into man a knowledge of himself by way of a conscience and an understanding of the difference between right and wrong. You see, mankind knows about God. He knows everything he needs to know in order to pursue him, in order to honor him as God, and in order to give him thanks. You see, people will be judged, not based on what they do not know. So the issue of whether or not a person hears the gospel is not really the issue at hand. The issue is, what do they do with what they know and what God has already revealed? And this betrays something else. And I've heard this many times. Many times I've heard this. And I think it's what leads to the question I just asked and what was asked of him many, many times. People have said, and perhaps you've heard this, that the only reason a person will be in hell is because of what they did or did not do with Jesus Christ. Now that question really does beg the other one, doesn't it? It kind of assumes that every person who has ever lived will hear about Jesus Christ. And if they don't hear about Jesus Christ, then it's unfair if the real reason people are in hell is what they do or don't do with Jesus. It makes it really patently unfair, doesn't it? Well, what Paul is saying in Romans 1 is, no, God's judgment was already upon mankind before Jesus Christ ever came into the world. Man was already, because of sin, because of this propensity to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, man was already under God's judgment and wrath. It's why we read, for instance, in Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You lived among those who once lived in the passions of your flesh. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the sun uh, or the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were by nature, he says, by nature, you were children of wrath, children deserving and under wrath like the rest of mankind. It gives us perhaps a clearer understanding of the words of the writer of the Gospel of John. John, as he writes, Jesus, as he speaks. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned. He didn't send him to announce the condemnation of the world. The world was already under God's wrath and condemnation, but he came in order that the world might be saved through him. And what is the evidence that the world is already under condemnation and God's wrath? This is the judgment, Jesus says. The light, he himself, has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
They evidenced themselves to be haters of God, already suppressing the truth of who he was and who he revealed himself to be in creation and providence and history. Jesus came to a world already condemned to rescue a people that the Father had given to the Son. We were already rejecting him and everything that was revealed. And therefore, Paul writes, so they are without excuse, without defense before God. Martin Lloyd-Jones captures it, I think, beautifully and in a full circle way, says this. That is the case, he says, of unbelievers. And that is why the apostle says that they are so utterly without excuse. They have got the truth. It is there in them. They see it outside of them, but they will not have it. They are deliberately suppressing it. There is the apostle's charge in general, and what a tremendous charge it is. It is the position of everybody who is not a Christian, convicted of ungodliness and unrighteousness, and without a single excuse. The evidence is against them. That is the evidence and charge they will face on the great and terrible day of God's judgment. You knew it, God will say. You felt it within you, and you deliberately suppressed it, and they will be silenced. There will not be a word spoken. There is no plea. There is no mitigation. And it is true of all men, even, he says, even the most remote heathen, the most primitive pagan, the one who has even never heard of the good news of the gospel. And that is what Paul is teaching in these verses and it is important for us at the outset of our study to understand this beginning section of Romans, chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It's the general statement that he makes that will carry through the whole section and will be that which is in the background as Paul begins to talk about, beginning in chapter 3, the work of God in Christ to sinners described as they are here in these verses. Well, what does all of this, as we draw all of this to a close tonight, what does all of this mean for us? I think there are several areas that we can think of with respect to these verses, what they teach. First of all, I think it rightly helps us in our evangelism. It really becomes the reason why we evangelize, why we take the good news of the gospel to those who are in this lost condition. We understand that mankind is lost under God's wrath, needs to be rescued from that wrath. And so with Paul, we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to all and everyone who believes. So it motivates, it directs us in our evangelism, whether that evangelism is to those around us, within our families. It reminds us that there is an urgent need it's been the background of every missions movement that has ever existed from the book of Acts onward to go out into all the world to take the good news of the gospel of a righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ as we understand the revelation of God's wrath and that no one has an excuse to ignore what God has so clearly revealed. Think of the missionaries we support who go 
the people who give so that they are able to go, who take the hope of Christ to lost sinners. That's where Paul's going to end up in Romans 10 when he talks about how will they hear unless someone be sent. And so the whole idea of missions and evangelism is rooted in this understanding that mankind is without excuse before a holy God. We have missionaries, my wife and I, that we support and have for many years who have taken the gospel of Jesus Christ to remote tribes in uh, Papua New Guinea, a place where there are hundreds of tribes that have never heard the gospel. They've gone to translate the scriptures and to proclaim the truth of Christ to them. You, you think of the missionary stories that we all know and love and have seen Uh, Jim Elliott and the Alka Indians, how they were motivated to take the gospel to those who lived in these remote regions, who were suppressing the truth of God until they came and heard the good news of the gospel later by his wife and others who entered that very tribe that took their lives. It helps us, motivates us, directs us in our evangelism and the work of missions. Secondly, I think it reminds us as these things often do, of the depth of our own need and our lostness before the grace of God. We were lost. We were blind. We did not understand or see. I think of our sister Lara now with the Lord who came to us in God's providence in a remarkable way, twisted events, his providence directing all things, whose understanding of the truth of God's word was at best confused and who, by the grace of God, in time began to see things as they were, professing a faith in Jesus, being baptized, all of that taking place in a relatively short period of time. But we need to remember our own lostness and our need of God's grace. This is who we were by nature, children of wrath under his judgment. It causes us to appreciate all the more the grace of God as we've received it through that special revelation in the gospel. And then thirdly and finally, it is and it does serve as a warning to all of mankind. All of mankind needs to be warned by this. That they are those who suppress the truth and there will never be a day where they could give an excuse to God. The atheist, we know what an atheist is, not a theist, right? That's the meaning of the word, not one who believes in God, who dismisses everything, who has so suppressed the truth of God that they have completely rejected God. That person has no excuse before a holy God. Neither does the agnostic. The meaning of that word is against knowledge. That means he basically says that there's not enough knowledge for me to make an educated decision regarding the presence and existence of God. As I was listening this week to several uh, preachers on this very subject, it was one who said this is perhaps the greater of the two in offense to God. Greater is the offense of the agnostic than of the atheist. The atheist just outright rejects God. And we think, well, that's shocking, but that's what people do all the time. The agnostic is doing something else. He's blaming God, actually, he said. He's actually blaming God for not giving sufficient evidence that he is indeed there and present 
And that is a slight against God, an attack against God, because Paul says here in Romans he's given sufficient evidence, and it is abundantly plain and abundantly clear. And so to blame God is a greater offense against God. But I think there's also a warning to those who've been raised in the church, who have sat in churches and heard the gospel over and over and over again. I think of covenant children raised in the church who have come to reject the truths and claims of Christ. You see, now we're in the realm of special revelation. Now we're in the realm of what God has so clearly made uh, and presented in his word. And when we reject that, when we turn away from that, there is even greater judgment to be faced. And we are even more so without excuse. That's why those passages in Hebrews which trouble so many believers are there. It's telling us not to take lightly those things, to reject what has been so clearly presented to you, not only in creation and providence and history, but in the very gospel of Jesus Christ that you have heard again and again and again. That is indeed a woeful condition, and you ought not to stay in it, but rather flee again to Christ. Now, we've seen throughout our study, and we're going to see more clearly as we continue these very things. Paul is writing Romans to clearly set forth a gospel of righteousness of God being revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, a righteousness that is revealed or that is received by faith for everyone who believes. But to get there, and as we'll see, to get there, he has to take us more and more into this section, which describes man's guilt before God, his desperate need before a holy God. His indictment is clear beyond argument. In these verses, he declares and will declare, all have sinned. There is no one righteous, not one before God. We are all guilty. We are all by nature without excuse. That is God's indictment. But the same God who indicts us is the God who has given us salvation in Jesus Christ. And in this we rejoice. Let us pray. Father, as we travel further down this road, which sometimes can seem overwhelming, in its discouragement and in its description of mankind by nature apart from your grace. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds that grasp and understand the truth of what you reveal, that there is no excuse for anyone who would stand before your presence on that great day and say that you have not made yourself clear, you have not revealed yourself clearly, you have you have in all that we see, and now as believers, we see and rejoice in. But Father, we pray that you would have mercy, perhaps on some even here this evening, who have never come to understand or come to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They've seen your character revealed in creation. They've beheld all of your attributes in what you have made. But they have never come to honor you. They've never come to give you thanks. Would you have mercy on them? And would they come, we pray, to believe and to rejoice in the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ alone. 
Thank you for that hope that you've given to us, lost sinners that we were. We pray now your blessing upon us as we leave this place, as we go to our homes, as we go into this new week. Bless us as we seek to bring this message of hope to a lost and dying world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.